Hi, writers. Welcome to our new episode on the craft of writing fiction. This is Jim Thayer. Boy, do we have a lot to talk about today, so let's stop dawdling and get to it. I like thinking about first sentences in a story, and I grin when I come across a great first sentence once I begin reading a novel. There's an art to writing a first sentence. I've spoken about it earlier and would like to return for another look. It's an important topic. Stephen King mentions the importance of a good opening line. He says, quote, An opening line should invite the reader to begin the story. It should say, Listen, come in here. You want to know about this. That's Stephen King, and that's exactly what a first line should do. It's an invitation to keep reading. It's a come-hither look for the rest of the story. The literary agent Donald Moss says, There is, in any great opening line, a mini-conflict or tension that is strong enough to carry the reader to the next step in the narrative. And he's right. Something often something bad, is about to happen, evident before the novel's first punctuation. All successful stories are about change, and sometimes writers feel as if they must set up the action, set up the scene, before putting the story in motion to clearly show to the reader what's at stake in the story. It's a mistake. We can save this for later. The first sentence should make the reader ask, what's going to happen next? I want to read several first sentences from novels. These first sentences are from different genres and different eras. They have something in common. They all create tension, and they do so in the very first words of the novel, and they propel the reader into the story. The author's in these first sentences, didn't wait until the end of the first page or the end of the first chapter to put tension in place, but rather they did so before the reader could take a breath. Uh, These first sentences invite the reader to keep reading. So here are opening first sentences. Sometimes there's two sentences, I think, of famous novels. Notice that they all ask a question. Here's Ralph Ellison in his novel, Invisible Man. I am an invisible man. And the reader asks, how can someone be invisible? What's going on? Here is uh, Albert Camus in The Outsider, his first sentence. Two sentences. Mother died today, or maybe yesterday. I can't be sure. The uh, Kumu asks in the very first lines, how can you not know when your mother died? Here is uh, Sylvia Plath in the bell jar. It was a queer, sultry summer, the summer they electrocuted the Rosenbergs, and I didn't know what I was doing in New York. Uh, Sylvia Plath asks in her first sentence, uh, how can you not know that? You're in one of the world's great cities and you don't know why you're there? Well, the reader has to keep reading. Here is Alice Walker's first sentence. Actually, it's two sentences. In the color purple. 
You better not never tell nobody but God. It'll kill your mammy. The reader asks, what in the world would be so bad that news of it would kill your mother? I have to keep reading. George Orwell in 1984. First sentence. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. Isn't that wonderful? 13? No clock I've ever seen strikes 13. What's going on? I'm, I need to keep reading. Here is Jane Austen in, in Pride and Prejudice, the, first, the famous first sentence. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. She asks us to ask, who is in want of a wife? It sounds like some scheming is going on. I'm going to keep reading. Here is uh, one of my favorite novels is by Dodie Smith, I Capture the Castle, a wonderful coming-of-age novel. Here is her first sentence. I write this sitting in the kitchen sink. The kitchen sink? Why would anybody do that? What what is she talking about? I'm going to keep reading. Here's C.S. Lewis, first sentence in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, his novel. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Isn't that funny? Why would anyone deserve that weird name? Here is Ian M. Banks in The Crow Road. It was the day my grandmother exploded. The reader asks, what in the world is he talking about? Here is the first Sentence of the novel Elmer Gantry by Sinclair Lewis. Elmer Gantry was drunk. Well, something bad is about to happen because it most often does to drunk people in fiction. What is going to happen next? So we keep reading. Here's Ray Bradbury's first sentence in Fahrenheit 451, a famous first sentence. It was a pleasure to burn. Reader asks, what's burning? Why is it a pleasure? Here's Ann Tyler in Back When We Were Grown-Ups, her first sentence. Once upon a time, there was a woman who discovered she had turned into the wrong person. <laughs> the reader asked, turned into the wrong person? What does that mean? Who Who's the wrong person? And here is uh, Carson McCullers. Uh, first sentence in the lovely novel, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. In the town, there were two mutes, and they were always together. What do you mean, two mutes? That's harsh, isn't it? And Why are they always together? I like this subject. Let me list a few more examples. I'll read a great opening sentence, followed by how a lesser writer would write an amateurish version of the same uh, first sentence. Here is uh, Ruth Rendell's first sentence in her novel, A Judgment in Stone. Eunice Parchman killed the Coverdale family because she could not read or write. Oh, isn't that fabulous? Here's my version. Eunice Parchman could not read or write. (laughs) 
That's not too bad of a sentence, but it doesn't have the wallop of Ruth Rendell's version. Here is Annie Hoxwell in A Bitter Taste. Here's her first sentence. She was 10 years old, but knew enough to wipe clean the handle of the bloody kitchen knife. Uh, Here's my version. She was 10 years old, and she grabbed the kitchen towel. (laughs) Isn't that horrible? Uh, Here is uh, Hilary Davidson's first sentence in her novel, The Damage Done. It was the bright yellow tape that finally convinced me my sister was dead. Isn't that great? I just have to keep reading. But not if I'd written that first sentence, which would have been, I crossed the hallway to find bright yellow tape strung across the door. Well, that's not too bad, but it doesn't have the punch of Hillary Davidson's real first sentence. Here is Wally Lamb's first sentence in, I know this much is true. On the afternoon of October 12, 1990, my twin brother Thomas entered the Three Rivers, Connecticut Public Library, retreated to one of the rear study carols, and prayed to God the sacrifice he was about to commit would be deemed acceptable. Boy, that's tense. Isn't that wonderful? Here's my dull version. On the afternoon of October 12, 1990, my twin brother Thomas entered the Three Rivers, Connecticut Public Library. (laughs) That's the most boring sentence you'll hear today. And what a difference between Wally Lamb's first sentence and my dull version of it. Here's, here's another, the, Cormac McCarthy's first sentence in his novel, The Road. When he woke in the woods, in the dark and cold of the night, he'd reach out to touch, to touch the child sleeping beside him. How's this instead, the dull version? He woke in the woods, in the dark and cold of the night. It just doesn't have the punch that Cormac McCarthy's real first sentence does. Here's the last one. Uh, It's the first sentence of the novel, The Night Circus, by Eric Morgenstern. Boy, I like that novel. Here's the first sentence. The circus arrives without warning. Well, uh, Aaron Morgenstern is telegraphing that bad things are going to happen with this uh, circus, and we know it in the first sentence. Here's my version. The circus arrived as it always did this time of year. (laughs) Well, uh, Aaron Morgenstern knows how to do it. See what these masters do with their first sentence. They put things in play. The reader doesn't have to wait for tension and mystery and forward momentum. They're there, right in the first sentence. These writers know there's no need to set things up, to make things tidy, to explain With the first sentence, the reader is launched into the story. I like reading good authors to see how they do it. And these first sentences are great examples of how to do it. My new novel, Fagin and Miss Havisham, has been released and is available at Amazon. The novel takes place in London in the 1820s, and its characters are Charles Dickens's famous characters from many of his novels. Fagin and Bill Sykes from Oliver Twist, Miss Havisham from Great Expectations, Murdstone from David 
Copperfield, and many others. They are younger than in Dickens's novels, and I toss them together to see what happens. The publisher is Creative Texts, an independent publisher and a good one, and I'm delighted. I had huge fun researching and writing the novel. I tried to take readers back to London 200 years ago, and I hope you'll consider getting a print or ebook copy. You'll be able to see whether I can actually do the writing techniques we talk about in these episodes. The title again is Fagin and Miss Havisham. Thank you. I'm going to mention Stephen King again, and why not? He's one of our great storytellers. Here is a list from Stephen King's book on writing, one of my favorites on living the life of a novelist. On writing gives glimpses of how Stephen King lives and writes, and it's fascinating. Uh, Stephen King doesn't present a list of writing techniques in his book. Rather, he gives techniques in a more discursive and and conversational manner. Uh, This list I'm going to read, which is plucked verbatim from Stephen King's book, was generated by the online site Barnes & Noble Reads in an article titled Stephen King's Top 20 Rules for Writers by Lauren Passell. And she has nicely put his advice into a list form, and I, I like lists, and this is a good one. I do not second-guess Stephen King. I have my own take on a couple of his techniques, and I'll mention them. Henry James said the house of fiction has many windows. Stephen King is right on all 20 of his techniques. On a couple, I'll offer a different slant, and I do so with humbleness. Winston Churchill famously said, he's a humble man with much to be humble about. That's certainly me when I offer a couple of different takes on Stephen King. Here's number one. First, write for yourself and then worry about the audience. Stephen King says, when you write a story, you're telling yourself a story. When you rewrite, your main job is taking out all the things that are not the story. Your stuff starts out being just for you, but then it goes out. Here's number two. Don't use the passive voice. And here's Stephen King. Timid writers like passive verbs for the same reason that timid lovers like passive partners. The passive voice is safe. The timid fellow writes, The meeting will be held at 7 o'clock. Because that somehow says to him, Put it this way and people will believe you really know. Purge this quizzling thought. Don't be a muggle. Throw back your shoulders, stick out your chin, and put that meeting in charge. Write the meetings at seven. There, by God, don't you feel better? That's Stephen King. Here's my take on it. Amen. Number three, avoid adverbs. Here is Stephen King. The adverb is not your friend. Consider the sentence, He closed the door firmly. It's by no means a terrible sentence, but ask yourself if firmly really has to be there. What about context? What about all the enlightening, not to say emotionally moving, prose which came before? He closed the door firmly. Shouldn't this tell us how he closed the door? And if the foregoing prose does tell us, then isn't firmly an extra word? Isn't it redundant? Uh, 
That's Stephen King. Here's me again, my take, another amen. Number four, avoid adverbs, especially after he said and she said. Quote, while to write adverbs is human, to write he said or she said is divine. That's Stephen King. Uh, he is talking about dialogue tag modifiers, and he sure knows how to write, and this rule is more proof of it. Number five, but don't obsess over perfect grammar. Here's Stephen King. Language does not always have to wear a tie and lace up shoes. The object of fiction, uh, fiction isn't grammatical correctness, but to make the reader welcome and then tell a story, to make him or her forget whenever possible, that he or she is reading a story at all. That's Stephen King. Uh, I don't think he is suggesting not using perfect grammar. We writers don't want to bring readers out of the story with bad grammar. Our characters, when speaking, can often use bad grammar. I, I should have went to the circus, but not in our narrative. Our words should be invisible on the page, and bad grammar isn't invisible. Number six in in the list from Stephen King's book on writing, The Magic is in You. Quote, I'm convinced that fear is at the root of most bad writing. Dumbo got airborne with the help of a magic feather. You may feel the urge to grasp a passive verb or one of those nasty adverbs for the same reason. Just remember, before you do, that Dumbo didn't need the feather. The magic was in him. That's Stephen King. My take, fear is the root of most bad writing. I've never thought about it, and it's interesting. He might be right. Number seven, read, read, read. Stephen King says, you have to read widely, constantly refining and redefining your own work as you do so. If you don't have time to read, you don't have time or the tools to write. That is Stephen King's famous quote, and he is as right as salsa on chips. Number eight, don't worry about making other people happy. Stephen King says, Reading at meals is considered rude in polite society, but if you expect to succeed as a writer, rudeness should be the second to least of your concerns. The least of all should be polite society and what it expects. If you intend to write as truthfully as you can... Your days as a member of polite society are numbered anyway. Uh, end quote. Well, I disagree with this. You can be a good writer and a member of polite society. Uh, I may be missing Stephen King's point here. Number nine, turn off the TV. Here's Stephen King. Most exercise facilities are now equipped with TVs. But TV, while working out or anywhere else, really is about the last thing an aspiring writer needs. If you feel you must have the news analyst blowhard on CNN while you exercise, or the stock market blowhards on MSNBC, or the sports blowhards on ESPN, it's time for you to question how serious you, seriously, how serious you really are about becoming a writer. You must be prepared to do some serious turning inward toward the life of the imagination, and that means, I'm afraid, that Geraldo, Keith Oberman, and Jay Leno must go. Reading takes time, and the glass screen takes too much of it. Number 10. You have three months. 
Stephen King says, The first draft of a book, even a long one, should take no more than three months, the length of a season. Well, my take is uh, different. Uh, Stephen King is a fast writer, and he must bring intensive concentration to his work. Maybe many writers can write a book in three months, but I don't think a lot of us can, uh, even if we concentrate well. And most new writers have a job or a family demanding a lot of time. Uh, writing a novel in three months just isn't possible for, possible for most of us. Number 11, there are two secrets to success. Stephen King says, When I'm asked for the secret of my success, an absurd idea that but impossible to get away from, I sometimes say there are two. I stayed physically healthy, and I stayed married. It's a good answer because it makes the question go away, and because there is an element of truth in it. The combination of a healthy body and a stable relationship with a self-reliant woman can take zero, uh, who takes zero from me or anyone else, has made the continuity of my working life possible. And I believe the converse is also true, that my writing and the pleasure I take in it has contributed to the stability of my health and my home life. Let's take a quick break. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. Number 12, write one word at a time. Here's Stephen King. A radio talk show host asked me how I wrote. My reply, only, uh, rather, my reply, one word at a time. Seemingly left him without a reply. I think he was trying to decide whether or not I was joking. I wasn't. In the end, it's always that simple. Whether it's a vignette of a single page or an epic trilogy like The Lord of the Rings, the work is always, always accomplished one word at a time. That Stephen King, my take is he's right. It's the eat an elephant one bite at a time theory. Number 13, eliminate distraction. This is Stephen King. There should be no telephone in your writing room, certainly no TV or video games for you to fool around with. If there's a window, draw the curtains or pull down the shades unless it looks out on a blank wall. Here's my take. Uh, He's right. But... I have a fabulous view of Puget Sound out my office, out my office in the home, out the window. I see container ships and bulk cargo ships and tugboats and yachts and once in a while an aircraft carrier, and I simply cannot close off the view with a curtain. Uh, this may be one of the reasons Stephen King is Stephen King and I'm not. Number 14, stick to your own style. Stephen King says, One cannot imitate a writer's approach to a particular genre, no matter how simple what the writer is doing may seem. You can't aim a book like a cruise missile, in other words. People who decide to make a fortune writing like John Grisham or Tom Clancy produce nothing but pale imitations. 
by and large, because vocabulary is not the same thing as feeling, and plot is light years from the truth as it is understood by the mind and the heart. That's Stephen King. Uh, my take, yes, stick to your own style. But Stephen King doesn't mean, I think, that we should forget the conventions of the genre we are writing in. A detective novel usually sounds differently than does a romance. Uh, we can conform to a genre's conventions and still write in our style. Number 15, dig. Stephen King says, when, during the course of an interview for The New Yorker, I told the interviewer, who was Mark Singer, that I believe stories are found things, like fossils in the ground, he said that he didn't believe me. I replied that that was fine, as long as he believed that I believe it. And I do. Stories aren't souvenir t-shirts or Game Boys. Stories are relics, part of an undiscovered, pre-existing world. The writer's job is to use the tools in his or her toolbox to get as much of each one out of the ground intact as possible. Sometimes the fossil you uncover is small, a seashell. Sometimes it's enormous, a Tyrannosaurus rex with all the gigantic ribs and grinning teeth. Either way, short story or thousand-page whopper of a novel, the techniques of excavation remain basically the same. That's Stephen King. I really like his take on this. We can find buried stories and make them our own. Number 16. Take a break. Stephen King says, If you've never done it before, you'll find reading your book over a six-week layoff to be strange, often exhilarating experience. It's yours. You'll recognize it as yours, even be able to remember what tune was on the stereo when you wrote certain lines, and yet it will also be like reading the work of someone else, a soul twin, perhaps. This is the way it should be, the reason you waited. It's always easier to kill someone else's darlings than it is to kill yourself. That's Stephen King on taking a break. Uh, Unless you have another writing project going, which I think Stephen King always has, taking a six-week layoff would be a huge hole in our writing calendar and probably something we shouldn't do. 17. Leave out the boring parts and kill your darlings. Stephen King says, Mostly when I think of pacing, I go back to Elmer Leonard who explained it so perfectly by saying he just left out the boring parts. This suggests cutting to, cutting to speed the pace, and that's what most of us end up having to do. Kill your darlings, kill your darlings, even when it breaks your egocentric little scribbler's heart. Kill your darlings. Number 18. The research shouldn't overshadow the story. Here's Stephen King. If you do need to do research because parts of your story deal with things about which you know little or nothing, remember the word back. That's where research belongs, as far in the background and the backstory as you can get it. You may be entranced with what you're learning about the flesh-eating bacteria, the sewer system of New York, or the IQ potential of a collie of collie pups, but your readers are probably going to care a lot more about your characters and your story. That's Stephen King, and my take is research is important for many novels, but King is spot on. As writers, we should put our research in the background. Number 19. You become a writer simply by reading and writing. He says, you don't need writing classes or seminars any more than you need this or any other book on writing. Uh, 
Faulkner learned his trade while working in the Oxford, Mississippi post office. Other writers have learned the basics while serving in the Navy, working in steel mills, or doing time in America's finer crossbar hotels. I learned the most valuable and commercial part of my life of my life's work while washing motel sheets and restaurant tablecloths at the new Franklin Laundry in Bangor. You learn best by reading a lot and writing a lot, and the most valuable lessons of all are the ones you teach yourself. Uh, that's Stephen King. I agree that the best way to learn to write is to read and to ask ourselves as we read what's working in this story and what isn't. But there's also room to take classes and read books on writing and listening to podcasts and joining a writing group. Why not? Techniques can be learned that way, and there are likely good techniques we'll, we won't pick up while reading. 20, and the last one. Writing is about getting happy. Here's Stephen King. Writing isn't about making money, getting famous, getting dates, or making friends. In the end, it's about enriching the lives of those who will read your work and enriching your own life as well. It's about getting up, getting well, and getting over. Getting happy, okay? Writing is magic as much, uh, writing is magic as much the water of life as any other creative art. The water is free, so drink. That's Stephen King. Uh, this is a good thought, and it's nicely motivating. It, it makes me want to write. So that's Stephen King about writing in his book, On Writing. His list, uh, generated from the, from the book by Barnes & Noble Reads, is a goldmine with much to think about for us writers. And I feel as if I have been visiting with Stephen King. Oh, what a pleasure. I hope maybe you do too. That's all for this episode. I'm glad you were along for it. If you'd like to send me a message, my address is jimthayerseattle at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys.